Blog Talk Radio. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning. How are you today? Hey, we're doing all right on this side, and this is Kim with Black Free Thinkers. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. One more time, I'll say that. We are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. So, hey, you know, I'm glad to be back. Today we're going to be talking about Black America, New Deal or Raw Deal Part 2, and next Sunday will be Part 3. But um, it's a lot of information to pack in. If you get a chance, go back and listen to the archives, Part 1, you know, which I did many, many, about two months ago. And I'm sorry, um, I had to take a little break there. Life happened. You know how this goes. But we're back, and that's why I added a part three. So part of today will be reinforcing what I talked about on part one. And it's a lot to kind of go over. But, again, as I've said before, I encourage you to go out and do some research and study for yourself and understand what happened then and the impact that it has on our lives now. So part three At the end of the show today, (laughs) I'll find the name of the book um, that I want you to take a look at. But right now, um, I'm coming from a few books, which basically are Fear Itself, The New Deal and Origins of Our Time by Ira Katz Nelson. You may also want to look up Affirmative affirmative Action for Whites or When Affirmative Action Was for Whites, another Ira Katz Nelson book and also The Condemnation of Black, Khalil Muhammad. So, you know, those are a few of the books that we get reference material from, as well as a number of, you know, um, journals and, you know, even some articles. So, again, I encourage you guys to go out there and do some research. We do this to kind of pique your interest, you know, and to encourage you to go out there because you'll learn a lot more. So, you know, there are a number of things that I would encourage you to look for, but, um, you know, how about Wilson's New Freedom? Go do some research on that. Wilson's New Freedom, Um, very, very, very important for you to know a little bit about that and how it's tied to the New Deal and and how some of this overlaps. So, uh, so much, so much to talk about. But before we get into all of that, um, yeah, I definitely wanted to thank you guys. So when I was off for the two months, because the last show I had done was December 20th, and then last Sunday, which was February 14th, um, I picked back up. But during the two months that we were gone, we had a lot of people hitting the archives to this show. So I meant to thank you last week, even though, you know, Again, you know, my heart was in the right place, but thank you. You know, I really, truly appreciate it because I was looking at the archive numbers, and it was just unbelievable, you know, and I was like, wow. So for those that are listening to the show, I appreciate you. New listeners, welcome, welcome, welcome. I appreciate it. And for those that have been around for a while, you know, I would encourage you guys, new and some of the ones that have been around, to go and take a look at the archives. You know, we've talked about a number of subjects over the years, and even when I'm talking about the New Deal today, um, you'll see that a lot of it overlaps or I'll be reinforcing it because, 
you know, some people may not have heard the other shows or there are times when you're listening, you may miss something, and that's fine because we do it. I do it all the time. So, um, you know, we'll be talking about the um, Federal Housing Authority and how it created a lot of these white suburban enclaves. And, again, that ties into the New Deal. It's important that you understand that. So it's so much to talk about. But, you know, before we talk about this, let's talk a little bit about what's happening in the news. I think that's important that we kind of go over that a little bit. Me, personally, I am absolutely sick and tired of this election. I can't wait until it's over. Because it's just, it's like a roller coaster. And it's like <laughs> it's like being stuck on a roller coaster, seat belted in. They can't get the seat belt off. They can't get the little, you know, safety bar off. So, you know, you're riding this roller coaster involuntarily, you know, for five, six, seven different rides. And so, you know, it's just absolutely nuts um, at the end of the day, you know, they're all on the same team. You know, I'm just going to put it that way. They're all in collusion with one another. So as far as I'm concerned, it really doesn't even matter if a Republican or a Democrat is chosen. And, you know, it's so interesting because part of this New Deal series here, we're going to be talking about the Democrats, formerly known as the Dixiecrats, and we'll be talking about Jim Crow and Jim Crow laws and why they were in place and how, you know, they're still in place. Nothing has really changed except they changed the names. It's no longer known as Jim Crow, you know. And, you know, we talk about a number of things, you know, because uh, I remember we were talking about Klan one time and how it went from them being in overalls carrying, a you know, a pitchfork to now they're wearing suits with a briefcase, you know, it's just got dressed up a little bit more. So has racism. So, you know, it's important. Go back, listen, go back, read, understand, take a listen to the archives. And, you know, you all have already been doing that. I appreciate it. I encourage you to do more of that. And it's not only on Blog Talk Radio. You can get some of our archives, well, pretty much all of them, on iTunes, um, Stitcher, Podbean. And when I was looking at some of the stats, you know, quite a few guys are coming from iTunes and Stitcher and a number of different places. Most people are listening to it through their browsers. So thank you. I appreciate it. And I need to start promoting the show more Um yeah, we're going to make some changes around here. Like I said, a lot of things have changed. A lot more are going to change. But, you know, again, I appreciate you guys. But let's talk a little bit about the news besides the election. That's pretty much all I have to say about that is I can't wait until it's over. And that's that. So I try to stay away from pop culture. You know, sometimes we'll mention a little something here and there, but I have to talk about this so so called boycott on Beyonce. So, you know, I'm not talking about Beyonce herself or her performances or the videos. That's you know, to me that's irrelevant to, you know, where I'm getting ready to go. But you have police officers all over the United States 
that are threatening to boycott Beyonce's concerts and not protect her because of her, you know, Super Bowl halftime show. And, you know, the Miami Union for Black Officers called BS on this so-called planned boycott of Beyonce. And so I find all of this interesting because some of them were offended by her halftime show because she paid, you know, tribute to the Black Panthers. And I'm just sitting here, and and now they're demanding that she apologize. And I don't think she's apologized, but if I was her, I wouldn't apologize for anything. You know, I find it rather ironic that you have a lot of these people, you know, running around and demanding that you apologize to them because they were offended by something that you said or something that you did. And if I was Beyonce, I would not apologize if, you know, they boycott her offices, her conferences, good Lord Almighty, if they boycott her concerts (laughs) and, you know, chaos and havoc arises then I would tell all the people that have been affected by that, put together a class action suit and start suing those cities that employs those police officers for not doing their jobs because this is absolutely ridiculous. So until she apologizes, they're going to boycott her. And I just find this whole thing, you know, rather ironic because we still have yet to see any of them apologize for killing people like Sean Bell, you know, Mike Brown, you know, even Trayvon Martin with Zimmerman's wannabe play cop self and also the fact that, you know, the police, they've killed a number of people, but yet you're demanding that she apologize for a performance, but you haven't apologized for taking, you know, lives through state violence, whether they're black, brown, yellow, red, or white. And so I just find it, you know, hilarious. If you all go back and listen to my show, I'm Just Asking Questions, which is in the archives. I did that, uh, I think it was May, April or May of last year. But the title of the show is I'm Just Asking Questions. And so in that show, I went over repressive, oppressive politics and a number of things. And so what I find interesting is you have people out here who will attempt to force force you to bend to their will. And they're not happy until you're genuflecting and kissing their asses. And, you know, that's across the board in a number of different communities. And, and it's just it's, it's funny to me because you still have people out here that claim – that they're more progressive, more liberal, that, you know, they've evolved, have been enlightened, but yet they still kowtow to the establishment and the status quo. And they try to force people to, you know, basically follow rules that they make up arbitrarily. And so, and, and then they're subjectively applied. And so I'm sitting here and you have all of these people, primarily men, trying to be Beyonce's and these other, you know, performers and what have these celebrities and, and so on, trying to be their new father or their new mother. And, you know, trying to force them like their children. Beyonce is grown, married, and ch- with children or with a child. 
and she has more money than pretty much all of us combined. So I'm just in, and all the cops combined, and I'm just sitting here and I'm laughing because they're trying to basically spank her, virtually spank her, and force her to apologize for her performance. And, you know, the most interesting thing about it is, you know, they claim that they're offended by the Black Panther reference. And a lot of people in this country still do not understand who the Black Panther Party was and what they stood for. And a lot of the good that they did this country, and especially brown and black communities and Asian communities and red, you know, communities, because if you go back, there are a lot of Chicano, Hispanic, Latino, Asian, um, indigenous, and white people who supported the Black Panther. And joined, I mean, go look up the Young Lords. You know, that was, that, that was you know, um, a group that came from the Black Panthers. It was a like, Chicano group that started here in Chicago. They had another group in New York, and ironically, Geraldo Rivera was the lawyer for the group in New York City. So go back. I mean, if you really want to read some of their archives as far as the young, the young lords are concerned, you can go to the DePaul University website. They have all of that archived. You know, I post about it every once in a while or tweet it out. I'll look for it again later on today and put it out there. But you can read the magazines that they had available then. And, you know, they had these 9-point, 10-point, 12-point programs and what they were demanding. And, you know, you saw that earlier um, with the protests down in Ferguson and, you know, the birthing of the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, go back, guys. You need to read up and understand what's happening now and how it ties back to what was happening then. But I'm still sitting here, and I'm just laughing because you have these people trying to force Beyonce to comply, you know, with their so-called logic and reasoning. And it's, it's crazy because they're trying to say that the message that she conveyed was anti-police. And that is not true. You know, it was a performance. And again, you know, the whitewashing of history in this country, you know, they've turned the Black Panthers into a little gang. They refer to them as thugs and all of this nonsense. And let me tell you, one of the reasons why the Black Panthers were as successful as they were is because they were organized. They were organized, and we were working collectively. Not everybody agreed with everybody. And so, you know, there was this thing called compromise. And so, you know, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the programs that were implemented by the Black Panthers, and then I'm going to segue into our topic today. But, you know, it's actually very, very important, because especially the New York Police Department you know, with everything that they've done, you know, you know, Eric Garner and, you know, um, um, Diallo and, and, and a number of other people, you know, I mentioned Sean Bell and a number of other people that were killed by state violence in New York City. And you're demanding that she apologize because you didn't like her halftime show. When are you going to apologize because we don't like you killing you know, black, brown, yellow, red, and white people in the streets like they're dogs. You know, so when you apologize for that, then maybe 
<laughs> you know, should I apologize for enjoying her performance? And so it's just it's absolutely ridiculous what we allow people to get away with in this country. But also what's even more ironic, you know, to it is that they feel as though they have the authority to force us to bend to their will. And, again, we've talked quite a bit about white supremacy, white privilege, um, and a number of things, you know, in this country. Because, you know, I see these conversations, I see these discussions happening all over, you know, social media. And you still have people out here who are still trying to claim that, you know, there's no such thing as white supremacy, you know, or wealth inequality and you know that's some some of the things that we're going to be talking about and we have talked about on this show but these are very real issues and <laughs> it's, it's it's just I don't know guys you know what's happening in this country today you know one of the things that we're going to talk about with this series is we're going to talk about the Jim Crow Congress you know back then and it's still in place now it's just that they don't call themselves the Jim Crow Congress. Um, you know, I want you to go and look up Southern Strategy. All of this is important, but I'm just laughing at the fact that they're trying to force her to apologize because of her halftime show. You you could have not watched the show. She did the video beforehand and, you know, the formation video so you kind of knew what direction she probably was going to go in. And you didn't have to watch it. And I'm just sitting here, and it's absolutely amazing. But I also find it ironic that it's the Black Police Union, you know, the Miami Union for Black Police Officers calling BS on these so-called planned boycotts. So, you know, um, guys, go and look that up. You know, it's, you, and when I say look that up, I'm talking about looking up their statement. I'm not going to read it, but I just find it amazing um, how they're trying to treat her like a child and trying to act like they're her surrogate fathers, you know. So, you know what, I am going to go ahead and read a part of it. It says, the Miami Fraternal Order of Police has voted to have all law enforcement officers boycott Beyonce's concert, which is being held at the Miami Marlins Stadium, blah, blah, blah. And Ortiz said in a statement, the fact that Beyonce used this year's Super Bowl to divide Americans by promoting the Black Panthers in her anti-police message shows how she does not support law enforcement, you know, and um, it encouraged other law enforcement agencies to um follow the same. And so this is it's just it's ridiculous. You know, I'm just sitting here and um it's crazy. <laughs> I'm just looking at it and all of this um taking aim at her because they are biased. That's you know yeah, you know, so the Miami Police Union, you know, they're calling BS on the so-called boycott of her show in, um, in Miami. This is just crazy. But I'm glad that they said something. I'm, I'm glad that they put their message out there. 
so that people wouldn't think that um, they approved of this nonsense. So anyway, again, it's a lot to talk about today. Um, I said I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, the Black Panthers, who they were, and why they were so important to, you know, history. And, you know, I'm just sitting here and, you know, like they've said before, you know, with the whitewashing of history, I mean, they have someone that's white that's going to play Michael Jackson. I mean, I remember posting an article talking about how in 10, 20 years, they were going to be portraying Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X as white. And, you know, that kind of goes back to some of the grievances that I have with, you know, Rachel Dolezal and her performative art as, you know, a black woman. So, oh, yeah, she just had a baby and named him Langston something, something, something. But, you know, it's just interesting. Um, The Black Panther Party brought a lot to not only, you know, communities of color, but also the federal government. I mean, a lot of people don't realize that the breakfast program that they have, you know, available in schools now, that was started by the Black Panther Party. They were feeding these children before they went to school because, again, you know, children learn better on a full stomach, you know, um, and you have people across this country, you know, even now in certain school systems that are trying to eliminate, you know, the breakfast program, especially with um the fact that the way that they're teaching these children now, they're not necessarily, in many cases, they're not necessarily teaching these children so that they can learn. They're teaching these children how to test. And that's dangerous because whatever happened to critical thinking, you know, um, using logic, you know, inductive, deductive reasoning, you know, um, a lot of that it has been taken away which is why, you know, some of the problems that we have, you know, in our community, people having, you know, an aversion to thinking for themselves. So, and I'm just, when I say that, I'm talking about across the board because you have quite a few lemmings in society. And it's unfortunate, but again, that's why I said we're here to challenge you to think and live for yourself not convert you. So, guys, get out there. But um, the Young Lords, and then if you go back and you look up, just do a Google search on Yellow Peril, Black Power, you know, and that talks about, you know, some of the Asians that were involved alongside and marching alongside with Black Panthers. And, again, you had a lot of, you know, Chicano, Latino groups. It's an amazing, amazing history. And, you know, I would encourage you guys to go, like I said, and look. But, you know, the Black Panthers, they started the medical clinics. They were policing their own communities. But now in many cities especially, um, if you go into the cities, you see these local community clinics. Well, the Black Panthers started that. You know, they were treating people, you know, um, that needed help, you know, and especially when they were out there protesting, but, you know, triaging people, helping them out. You saw a lot of that 
with Ferguson and, you know, the other protests that have, you know, that broke out across this country. And, you know, it's not over yet. Protests, you know, haven't stopped. But, you know, again, you know, sitting there, people, you know, traveling with their first aid kits, it's important, guys, that you understand about this. Um, they started, um, you know, the sickle cell anemia testing. They were testing people, you know, you know and it's, you know, guys, it's just, it was absolutely phenomenal because they had, you know, different programs of survival. So, yeah, they were testing people for sickle cell anemia. They were, you know, they had a dental program. They had an optometry program. They even had a free ambulance program transporting people to the hospital, you know, in a timely manner. And it didn't matter if the person had insurance or what their financial status was or if they had the money. You know, they had the free food program, you know, and again, around the country you have people mobilizing, you know, um, you know, um, food banks. You know, it happened here in Chicago, down in Ferguson, and a number of different places across this country. So what they do is they, they contact the food pantry, develop a program, and then it's mobile, which means the food pantry brings food to them to a local spot. It's not even a building. It'll be an empty lot. And they stand there and they give out the groceries to whoever walks up and says that they need food. That is how this is supposed to be done. You know, and, you know, again, you know, many of us, we want the office so we can store it a little bit better. But until we get that type of space, you know, I definitely would recommend that, you know, we're putting one together um, for people of color beyond faith. Um, we're going to be doing this really soon. So I'm working with another group so that we can get the people out there and get the volunteers out so that we can pass, you know, out the groceries and the things that people need. And I talked about the breakfast program. They even had a food cooperative program, you know, and this is something that I've talked about as well. You know, go and look up um, cooperatives in the black community. You know, Hammer and Hoe is a good book, and it talked about a cooperative program down in Alabama and was a black, you know, communist farmer's that put together that cooperative program. You know, a lot of us don't know the history, and that's one of the reasons why we do this show, which is why I enjoy doing this show, because I'm learning right along with you guys, trust me. And that's why sometimes I get on the show and I'm, like, extremely, extremely excited because it's like I have something to share. Oh, man. And so I have to, you know, watch myself because, you know, I post a lot of stuff where I used to. But um, go out there and do some research. You know, I really just haven't felt like posting a lot because I know I give a lot of information on the show. And, again, I just want to encourage people, you know, go out there. You know, just for shits and giggles, put anything in Google. <laughs> you know, I'm sure something will come up. But, you know, they had their own news service, and so this is how they were able to distribute news and information in about what was happening in other places. You know how it used to be, you know, first of all, it used to cost like a dollar a minute for long-distance phone calls, which is why our parents would yell at us, get off my phone. But, you know, a lot of that was passed, you know, that way. And then 
back then when we had communities and people that went outside and talked to each other and congregated and shared that information. You know, it was interesting because when I had Christopher Everett on the show and we were talking about the massacre in Wilmington, North Carolina, you know, um, you know, he was talking about how, you know, some of the older people who lived through it, they didn't want to talk about it and how, you know, we knew of people who said that stay out of North Carolina because, you know, something bad happened there, and they may not have known the exact wording or the exact problem of, of what happened, but they knew they had been warned not to go back to that particular state. So, you know, now with the Internet and the technology and innovations that we now have, that's the beautiful thing because now we're able to share information globally and we're able to organize via the technology. And that is what made what happened in Ferguson and Baltimore and across this country, that is what made it amazing because they were able to galvanize, you know, other people and they were able to collectively come together. But most importantly, you know, what I find found most hilarious was in New York City when the police were chasing the protesters around and the police would get to, let's say, you know, somewhere over in Bed-Stuy because they thought the protesters were there. So they would all rush to that area and the protesters would be gone. And so they were having a hard time keeping up with the protesters. And it was the funniest thing ever. I remember posting all of that. And, you know, I also remember talking to you all about, you know, a lot of the technology that's being implemented now. One particular program is called Stinger. And it's called, and sometimes I get it mixed up and I'll call it Striper. Please forgive me. But the name of the program is Stinger. And with that particular technology, they're able to intercept your phone calls, intercept your voicemails, inter- intercept your text messages, and read them before you even get to them. They're able to reroute your calls and a number of things. So this is why we're telling people to be careful. And, you know, that's what makes, you know, a lot of this, you know, absolutely amazing. I saw some news show, and it was talking about how some of the young people are using emoticons to, um, emoticons, not with an M, but with an N, Um, They're using that to communicate with one another, and a lot of the older people, the parents, are having a hard time, you know, interpreting it or translating it or what have you. But, um, you know, a lot of this is absolutely ingenious. And so go back and look at it. But, yeah, we definitely need our own form of communication, which is why I love, you know, a lot of the things that are out here. So, you know, we're able to get information to one another. And what a lot of people don't seem to understand is, you know, what's happening here in America, this is happening all over the globe. It's not just here. You know, I want you all to go up, go and look up what's happening over in London, England, And, you know, how, you know, they had an incident that was very similar to what happened to Sandra Bland in this country. And I don't have the young woman's name, and I apologize for that because I didn't plan on talking about that today. But, you know, go and look it up, you know, and when we were protesting, and the protests are not over. 
Um, you had people, you know, marching in solidarity with us, you know, going see what's happening over in the Netherlands, see what's happening in Germany. I know I talk about it all the time, but I'm talking about it because, again, it's important. It's important that you understand that, you know, a lot of the same tragedies are happening in communities of color all over the world. And we've talked about anti-blackness, and we've talked about how anti-blackness is an industry. It's an industry. It makes money, period. You know, poverty is an industry. It makes money. And fear. And so, again, so there you go. But then they had a community employment program, so you know, it's called People's Free Community Employment Program. And this is with the Black Panthers, and it provided free job training services, you know, and I'm pretty sure they, they implemented interview skills, you know, teaching people how to interview properly. Um, they had a shoe program, and this is something that I see now, you know, happening um, where I get my locks, uh, where my loctician works. Um, they've been collecting shoes as well as clothing. And so, you know, I've taken some stuff over there, and it's a lot more because I'm getting ready to, you know, clean out a whole bunch of stuff. So um, if any of you out there, you know, need some, well, I'm just going to go ahead and do what I was going to do, give the rest of them to domestic violence programs and um, go from there. But they also had the free clothing program, so that, you know, that ties into all of that. They had free legal aid and educational programs. You know, they they provided legal aid classes to people and, and legal services because even now with the protesters, this is why, you know, we have different funds out there set up to help these people, you know, <laughs> who are arrested for, in many cases, no reason at all. They're arrested because they were vocal about their civil rights, their civil liberties. And so, you know, you have these jail funds out here. You know, they need donations, you guys. So look it up um, and and help. They need help. You know, we have, you know, different lawyers that are working with these different organizations and and protesters and activists, and that's needed. That was needed then and it's still needed now. So, you know, not much has changed. You know, it's just that they try to vilify the Black Panther Party, and they were very successful you know, in vilifying and demonizing this particular group. But that's the beauty of the technology and different programs, you know, like, you know, this show here, is that we're trying to correct, you know, the propaganda that's been put out there. And so they had a number of programs. Here you go. They had free busing to prisons, you know, because sometimes – you have loved ones, you know, that may be incarcerated for a number of reasons, but, you know, the families want to go and visit their loved ones. And so they were providing that particular service, um, you know, commissary for the prisoners. Um, and here's one that I didn't hear of until most recently. They had Seniors Against a Fearful Environment program. It was called their SAFE program. And what they were doing is they were providing free transportation and escort services to senior citizens, you know, taking them to the community banks on the first of each month and, you know, you know, giving them the things that they needed and helping them to feel safe. 
And again, this is about community policing. You know, they had the cooperative housing program. They had the free plumbing and maintenance program, free pest control, cooperative housing. I said that already. They had the community schools, you know, free music and dance lessons and child development center. And see, what was interesting about their child development center is that it provided 24-hour child care for infants and children between the ages of two months and three years. You know, and they were engaging the youth in scientific programs to develop their physical and mental, you know, faculties, you know, at the earliest of ages. So, you know, again, guys, go read, research. It's extremely, extremely important that you know, you know, who these people were, you know, Huey Newton and, you know, Elaine Brown and Angela Davis and Kathleen Cleaver, Eldridge Cleaver, you know, um, go read. You know, this is how many of our communities were able to survive. And it's just, it's just, I don't, you know, I can't even really articulate how I feel now about what's happening in our communities and just some of the pushback that we're getting in this country just for wanting to live, just wanting to be free, wanting to be liberated, wanting to be treated with respect, common human decency, dignity, and respect. Why should we have to ask? It should be a given. But now that we're demanding it, there's a lot of white resentment. And, you know, that's why when I see people saying, all lives matter and and crossing off black lives matter and replacing it with that you know that's one of the reasons why many of us are offended we get very offended by that because if black lives really mattered we wouldn't have to be out here saying it and you know one of the things that i've talked about um is you know we've talked about the white community and how some of them want to be part of anything and everything that we see and do. Now, some of them have a genuine interest in it. There are others that come in that want to control us and control everything and and make decisions for us. And so this is where the accommodation versus inclusion argument comes in. And, you know, what's interesting is, is that, a lot of whites that are entitled and, you know, used to a particular type of privilege feel that we should accommodate them and and their feelings, or as we like to call them, white tears. And there are many of us that absolutely disagree with that. You know, we are not responsible for white tears or white accommodations. They don't accommodate us. You know, which is interesting, but, I mean, we do have allies out there. We do have allies that care. We do have allies that are out there marching with us. And I remember having a conversation, well, many, many conversations, but um, there were a couple of conversations that were quite disturbing because, you know, the, the white progressive liberal that, you know, that I was speaking with at that moment, you know, was was emphatically 
arguing about the white lives that were lost during the civil rights black power movement. And, you know, he wasn't understanding that I was, you know, acknowledging that there were white lives that were lost during that time. However, he didn't appreciate when I said that those white lives were not more valuable than the black lives that were lost during that time frame and even now. And, you know, that's one of the arguments that I've come up against, you know, most recently. And it absolutely, you know, I'm ready to pull my hair out of my head because, you know, yes, there were, you know, a lot of white people then and now that are putting their careers, their lives, their families on the line. And I get that. I understand that. But, again, we just have to make sure that, you know, people understand that there are a lot more black lives that are being lost. And, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, the white lives weren't valuable because we definitely need our allies out here, you know, standing with us. But we have to put these things into perspective. And you have some people out here, and let's just go on and be honest and real about it. You have some people out here that, you know, claim to be our allies, but they definitely are not looking out for our best interests. You know, um, in, in, in some cases, it's called ally theater. And some of these allies... They come out and they put on a spectacle now. They will give you some drama. And so, <laughs> you know, uh, you have people that are acting the part, but they're not necessarily living or truly believing in in the act that they're putting forth. So this is one of the reasons why we're extremely cautious about, you know, some of the people that we allow to work alongside us. And it's just, it's absolutely amazing. But yet, you know, you got a lot of people out here playing ally theater. They want us to acknowledge them specifically. Um, it's just, it's, it's amazing, you know, um, a lot of the stuff that's happening. You wouldn't believe it and and. But we've talked about it. So anyway, moving on, just go out and do some research. Look that information up as far as, you know, the Black Panther Party, what they stood for. They, It was not a gang. They were not thugs. And also, let me make sure I clarify something. I'm talking about the Black Panther Party of the 60s and the 70s. These new Black Panther Party people, I don't know what they're doing. You know, we're trying to figure that out, but I'm not talking about them. So, you know, again, I'm not talking about them whatsoever. Um, you know, what's interesting is is that when you see a lot of these Second Amendment pro-gun rights people, you know, walking through different communities, you know, with fully automatic and semi-automatic weapons, and nothing is said when they're marching, but when you see people of color marching, you know, believing in and for the same rights, you know, people are getting arrested, <laughs> calling the police on each other. Um, you know, I remember one incident in which there was a black guy marching with a group of white 
you know, guys with their weapons out in the open. And the black guy was the only one arrested by the police. You know, my question is, why are they so afraid of us? Um, if you all don't remember, the Black Panther Party also was pro-Second Amendment. And what happened is they went to the capital of California, which is Sacramento, and they went into, you know, the, um, the legislative building, you know, with their guns drawn. And at that time, Ronald Reagan was the governor of California. And, you know, that scared the living crap <laughs> out of white people, not only in California, but, you know, across this country. And at that time, you know, the NRA, you know, they were the ones that were for limiting gun rights, so on and so forth, in response to the show of power by the Black Panther Party. And so I just find it ironic how things have crossed over. And now they don't want any type, well, I won't say any type, but they want very lax um, laws and policies for gun owners. And, you know, and this is in, this is in response to the so-called, you know, the myth of black criminality. You know, it's not a so-called myth. It is a, a myth, the myth of black criminality. And so, you know, it's just interesting how, when these programs benefit people of color, how all of a sudden the mainstream is against it. But then when it's when it changes over and it benefits the mainstream more, then how, you know, they switch sides. But anyway, guys, go and look that stuff up. It's extremely important. So, um, <laughs> you know, the Huey Newton Gun Club, um, it was a book, and I mentioned it last week. And you all may be interested and in, go out and read it, but it's titled "All That Nonviolent Stuff Will Get You Killed." And you know, one of the examples that I see some white people louding or attempting to loud over us—they were saying that during the Black Power, well, we won't even say the Black Power during the Civil Rights Movement, because they specifically talk about Martin Luther King Jr. And, you know, those that were part of that particular movement, they talk about how they were nonviolent, but most particularly, they like to say that they didn't have guns or weapons or any means really to defend themselves, when that is not the truth. You know, it was the guns that kept them alive. Now, don't be fooled. You know, even Martin Luther King Jr. had a weapon on him. Now, you go back. Now, you go back and you do some research and understand that. And, you know, there are a lot of people that disagree with the fact that myself and many others believe that it is necessary that we have self-defense training. And it really is. So, I mean, you have different gun ranges. If you're going to have a gun, learn how to shoot the thing. And also learn how to clean it. Because if you don't clean your gun and you put a bullet in there, it may backfire on you. So it's important that you know how to clean it, how to store it, how to use it properly, understand about, you know, the safety, the different safety mechanisms, you know, that are available, whether it's a trigger lock. And, you know, even most guns have a safety on it. You have to turn the safety off in order to be able to, 
shoot, you know, but then you have guns out there that do not have safeties on them. And and many of them, you know, they have a hairpin trigger. So you have to be very careful um, and just understanding the different types of weapons out there. You know, you have long guns, handguns, revolvers, just a number of things held. You know, if you can't have a gun, you know, maybe you can get a crossbow. You got to know how to use that thing too. So um, it's just interesting uh, what's out here. But yeah, definitely. I was going to talk about this program that was on um, NPR. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and talk about it a little bit. Now, again, inboxing me or, you know, having a long discussion, you know, what the hell is she talking about? She's lost her mind. No, this is, is, you know, basically a satirical solution to diversity problems, and it's called Rent a Minority. Again, Rent a Minority and, you know, how (laughs) you can get ethics, you know, with our ethics, and it talks about how you can rent a minority to show up to your programs every once in a while to show that, you know, you all have diversity. You know, you know they'll even be able to play that, you know, black BFF you're always talking about. So uh, it's just, it's really interesting, you know, how all of that plays out. But, um, yeah, it's, it's really funny. So, again, go over to NPR, <laughs> rent a minority, you know, and talks about that token black guy, you know, who's <laughs> the face of rent a minority, And it's just, it's so funny because, you know, we're seeing that in this country across a number of different groups and um, movements, you know, you get that, yeah, rent a minority thing, you know, the token black guy, the token black woman that they have and is absolutely, you know, it's, it's, it's amusing, it's entertaining. You know, I've you know we've been talking about this type of thing for years, but the fact that someone put a website up, I find that hilarious. I need to do some more research into it. But you know, we see this on you know an everyday basis, and what's so funny about it is that people absolutely miss the joke. You know, they miss the irony in this, and so. Um, <laughs> you know, for those of you who think you'll be able to make some money on this, no, there's no money to be made. Just like in a lot of these movements, there there's no money to be made. You have people out here that are attempting to figure out how to capitalize on these things. You know, you have different people in many of these different movements that don't believe a damn thing they're saying. You know, they're just in it to make a buck. And it happens to be, you know, the subject or, you know, what have you of the day. You know, it's the current fad. So this is why, you know, we we talk about these things, why we talk about identity politics. Um, It's extremely important. But most importantly, you have to learn how to read in between the lines. You know, so, yeah, you're in a minority program you know, fully implemented in a number of places. But anyway, we're getting ready to segue 
into the topic. I've been talking about a number of different things. Oh, we have a caller on the line. For those that are interested in calling in, the number is three one yeah, three one zero nine eight two four two seven three. Again, three one zero nine eight two four two seven three. Press one to interact with us. So let's see here. We're going to bring our caller on board. Hello, caller. Hello, May I ask your name? Uh, my name is uh, Tahako Monel B. out of Jacksonville, Florida. How are you this morning? I am just lovely. And yourself? I'm just fine. I was uh, listening to you, mm-hmm. and you were talking about the uh, minorities and the uh, thing about the guns and stuff of that nature, and that really, really struck my interest. I uh, host the online radio broadcast at Block Talk as well at Morris Talk Live 100. But um, I would like to uh, uh, state that uh, when it comes to the subject about minorities, uh, one thing that uh, we haven't taken a look at as people of African descent on this continent is the fact that uh, we may be a minority uh, on this continent, but we are a majority on this planet, and right. people who exactly. have labeled us, right? People who have labeled us as minorities are, in, in truth, minorities uh, globally. Uh huh. Uh huh. I agree, one hundred percent. You know, and and that's part of the fear. They know that globally they're a minority, but in America, in and of itself, with the browning of this country. And the fact that they are, you know, not reproducing at the same rates as, you know, other communities of color, you know, that is part of the fear. That's the biggest part of the fear. And that's why, you know, when you have some of these racist assassins, domestic terrorists running around, that's why you always hear them talking about you're raping our women. But go ahead. You're you're on point. Well, another thing that we had to look at, too, is if we do the research, and this is something that a lot of us just simply don't do, we don't take the time to verify a lot of information Mm -hmm. that's coming along. We're in the information age. There's no doubt about it. But have you verified what you've seen? When you hear the word terrorist, uh, have you looked at the uh, story uh, involving terrorists? Because what we have going on here in the United States is we have a false flag situation that's been occurring even before Vietnam. And they have all been false flags. The false flag of Vietnam, the uh, Tonkin incident, false flag, the uh, World Trade incident, false flag. Because we have to understand that the United States of America, uh, since its inception, has never ever, and even to this day, ever, been without his slaves. And if you have a slave, you have to control that slave. You cannot afford to educate that slave. But you have to give the slave the illusion that he is receiving an education, minus knowledge concerning himself in his own ancient story and his identity. And that's what we have going on here today. In this country, and we so, got false flags. And so, my question to you is so that you know the listeners 
and I want to make sure that, you know, I'm understanding. Define false flags for, for the listeners. A false flag is something that is created to give the illusion that someone else is doing something to you, which is simply not true because the creator of the false flag is in itself, the devil. Now, we looked at, to give you examples, when we looked at the uh, uh, bombing of Pearl Harbor, look at everything that occurred leading up to the event. You discover that it was the United States that did that once they got in position to receive benefits from it. War is the biggest money-making machine on the face of the earth. They gave the false flag that the Japanese had uh, attacked the vessels belonging to America uh, in the Tonkin incident. That was a lie. They gave the false flag about the terrorists <clears throat> bombing the uh, World Trade Center. That was a lie. Okay. Because so, America has never been with right. that Okay, so you're saying that it was a false flag with the World Trade Center with the terrorists. And 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 so who flew into those buildings? And those were drones. Those were oversized drones. What they did was the uh, current administration, when you do the uh, research, uh, you can find a great deal of information about what really happened right there on YouTube. Uh, you can also read. Well, I mean, but, you know, but the thing is, you know, but the thing is, is that you know, with the technology and, as you said, the age of information that we have available out here, you know, we still have to be careful because, you know, anybody can launch a YouTube channel and make videos. Up. Same thing with websites. You know, people get in, like you said, verify. But there has not been any verifiable information stating that drones were flown into the World Trade Center. Now, what you're talking about with, you know, World War II and Pearl Harbor and them blaming it on the Japanese or saying that the Japanese, um, you know, attacked us. Um, one thing that I will say is that our war machine, you know, anytime the economy is lagging, and we're in a major recession or depression, you know, all of a sudden that's where all these wars come from because we still have to make the weapons, we have to make the planes, we have to send people over there, which means job vacancies occur and the people in this country can fill those jobs until the troops come back. You know, war, all of that, you know, again, that's an industry. People make money that way, especially if you look at people like Halliburton and Blackwater and all of that, they're making billions of dollars off of this war machine. But, um, you know, what you're talking about as far as, you know, people being slaves in this country, now that's something that I discussed last week. I believe I talked a little bit about how, um, you know, slavery in and of itself really has never left this country. But when Ronald Reagan was elected as president of the United States, a lot of the policies and programs that he put in place and that he cut basically re-enslaved um, African Americans. And I posted that on my wall. It was an article by Noam Chomsky. But again, you know, some of what you some of what you're saying has some validity because again you know and this is something that I've talked about you know on the show that in order for the US economy 
to not fail and completely collapse. There has to be a certain number of people or percentage of people unemployed and underemployed. And it's just really interesting when you go back and you start reading about this information. But, um, yeah, you know, a lot of what's happening in, in the world, you know, it's not just in America. They're having some of the same problems and other places, you know, all around the world here. But, um, you know, the false flag thing, you know, again, like I say, you have to go out and you need to do the research to, you know, take a look at these things. But as far as them creating false flags for the World Trade Center, okay, so I wouldn't necessarily call it a false flag. When we hear people talking about ISIS and Al-Qaeda and, you know, all of these different groups, you know, my question is, you know, where did these groups come from and why are they so angry with us? And, you know, my response to that is we've created these different particular groups. You know, you have these children that have seen their neighbors or their families killed or bombed, and so when they grow up, there's a lot of anger there. And another part of it is, you know, a lot of people don't realize that at one point in time, Osama bin Laden was one of the, you know, the CIA's best friends, and they funded him. And then I guess they had a fallout. He didn't do what they wanted him to do, and then now he's the enemy. And this happens all over the world. It happens all of the time. So, you know, again, this is why we tell people, and you're right, you know, trust but verify and go out there and, and look the information up. And, you know, a lot of this is still, you know, taking place today. I mean, hey, you have people in this country talking about ISIS and Islamophobia, and it's just a lot of craziness. And this is one of the reasons why Raina and I, you know, talk about these particular issues, calling out different, you know, communities about the dangerous rhetoric that they're putting out there. So, you know, when you're talking about how, you know, you have people out here that's basically galvanizing or attempting to galvanize the American public to hate Muslims, to hate, you know, um, you know, different groups of people, you know, yeah, there's a lot of propaganda. I definitely agree with that. But also we have to look at the big picture and go and see what our particular government's role was in, in some of these different positions, you know, different crises or, you know, um, predicaments that we're in. So, yeah, guys, like, you know, he said basically the same thing I did. You have to go out and you have to do your research. So, you know, thank you for calling in. I appreciate it. So, you know, again, we, you know, we're going to be talking about the New Deal and the Raw Deal and, and, you know, what was happening and why it came about. And what a lot of people don't understand or they seem not to understand, and when Dr. Jeffrey Perry was on the show, um, he talked about how before the New Deal, it was basically for one unemployed white person, there was one unemployed black person. But after the New Deal, you know, was implemented, it went from being one white person unemployed and one black person unemployed, that it went to one white person unemployed to two black people unemployed. And if you go and you look at the information, the statistics that are out there, you know, this, you know, this has been going on for a while. And in some cases, it's three unemployed black people to one unemployed white person. 
So, you know, what was happening during the New Deal is that you had people who were marginal, unskilled workers or marginal workers, and, um, you know, they needed the economy to expand for them as well. And, I mean, you know, they needed new jobs created, you know, which is the same problem and issue that we're seeing now. And so that's why, you know, when, when we talk about these things, I try to put it in current perspective. And so with the New Deal policies that, you know, were implemented, it made it harder for these companies, these employers, to hire people. And, you know, a lot of the, you know, red tape, you know, the federal taxes, you know, tripled between 1933 and 1940. It's important that you guys understand that, you know, FICA, which is Social Security, which you should see on your check, you know, every pay period, you know, a percentage that's taken out, you know, those excise taxes, you know, um, discouraged people from hiring. You know, they had, you know, security laws that made it harder for, you know, these companies or employers to raise capital. You know, the antitrust lawsuits, you know, that were implemented with the New Deal, you know, it, it, it created problems for employers and entire industries. You know, and it's just, you got to go back. There were a lot of bizarre things implemented that basically were put in place to, um, you know, kind of disrupt the private sector employment process. Because, you know, you have to understand there is the private sector and the public sector. So um, at that time, you know, these were a number of things, but, you know, they passed Agricultural Adjustment Act in 1933, and this is important. We've talked about this, but, you know, what happened there, it was supposed to help farmers by, you know, cutting farm production and forcing the price of food up. And so when there's less production of, you know, of, of, of you know, products, um, that meant less work. And majority of the people that were in the agricultural or agrarian society, they were poor black sharecroppers. And even with domestic workers, those were, you know, black people. For the most part, you know, you had some white domestic workers, but it was primarily, you know, black people. And they were definitely, you know, um, disadvantaged in, in that particular situations and basically you know it was over a hundred million consumers that were being forced to pay more money for food you know because the food prices went up and so again you know you're seeing that even now you know what's interesting is in 2007 and 8 when we had the mortgage bubble you know there were um, basically food riots all over the you know the world you know we didn't necessarily see it in this country but the prices of food went up you know quite a bit as a matter of fact if you were following the stock market then you know investing in in companies that you know um, that manufacture and distribute you know a lot of our food their stock prices went up i mean you know they made a lot of money from that um you had the wagner act this also harmed a lot of black people, you know, because what it did is it made labor union monopolies legal. And for those of you in this community, you know, we've talked about Asa Philip Randolph on a number of occasions. You know, I really admire that man. And, you know, he was one of the co-founders of the Pullman Porters. 
union. And, you know, this is why you see a number of these um, presidential candidates, you know, vying for, um, you know, the endorsement of some of these unions. Now, the Republicans are trying to get rid of unions across the board. And this is why we tell people that it's important that they register to vote and then go vote because, you know, there there are a lot of things that are happening in this country, but one of the main things that they're trying to do is that they're trying to privatize everything. So, you know, go back, look up the Wagner Act of 1935, and, you know, um, yeah, you know, go back and look it up. It's it's important um, that you look at it because basically, you know, once the unions increased, you know, the salaries or the wages, then, you know, the employers, you know, were less likely to hire folks, you know, and then they would only hire people that were part of the insiders. And you've heard that, you know, it's not about what you know, it's who you know. And that's part of the insiders type of, you know, um, you know, good old boys network that's being, you know, that takes place. But it's it's a lot, it's a lot of things that made, um, that created, you know, an even less secure environment for, you know, black people. So it's, it's important that you go and you look this information up um, to find out what was happening here. <laughs> you know, yeah, look up the Tennessee Valley Authority. Look that up. I think you'll find that, you know, interesting because it was a social experiment, you know. And um, the New Deal programs, as we've talked about before, they were being pushed down to the states, the money. And so then the states were able to decide how to administer that money, and this is what enabled them to discriminate, you know, against people of color, particularly black people. And what was so interesting about that is, you know, um, at the close of Reconstruction, you know, basically, you know, here's a quote from, uh, uh, let me see here, where is his name? From Quentin, or Lucius Quintus Lamar. And he was a 19th century planter, lawyer, soldier, diplomat, and scholar. You know how this goes with these 20 titles. But basically he said that, you know, with the passage of the New Deal, that the Southern people would now forget about the Negro as an issue and turn their attention to more important matters. And so you still see some of that attitude even now. You know, and this is why we're telling you to go back, because even then they were saying that race was no longer an issue in national politics, and they wanted to bring to the forefront policies that could realize a longstanding regional desire for economic, you know, um, rectification. And so you're seeing that even now, you know, even within a number of communities, um, you'll hear them say we live in a post-racial colorblind society, and that is not true. And this is a myth that has been perpetuated 
for centuries, you know, and I mean, even though it's less than a century since the New Deal, they were trying to say that even before the New Deal, that, you know, they weren't discriminating or there wasn't any racism in place, that, you know, black people in particular were just a little bit too sensitive or hypersensitive. Go back. Go back. And, and and look this up and you go back and you look at some of the southern regions of this country and their political, you know, leaders, basically you'll see that, you know, they were happy about the New Deal because of the economic policies that they thought would benefit their depressed, you know, society or their depressed economies. And so, um, and they thought that this was a chance to, basically escaped from their colonized status. You know, and it's it's just interesting because the South, you know, they considered themselves colonized and they wanted to be from under, they wanted to get from under that particular uh, (laughs) type of status, but yet they want to keep, you know, black people colonized. It's just, it's absolutely amazing, just irony. But again, like I said, go and look up Wilson's New Freedom you know, to get a better understanding of what was happening. But, you know, this had a dire effect on the black community. And, you know, when I talk about this, you know, there were a lot of blacks at that time who faithfully voted for the Republican Party. But when the New Deal was implemented, that is when you saw the switch. That is when you saw a number of blacks then starting to vote, you know, for for the Democrats. And a lot of people don't understand or realize that, you know, the Democratic Party of that day, they were, for the most part, white supremacists. That is where the Klan was born, you know. And it's just a lot of this history, they don't teach you this stuff in school. You need to ask why. Ask why. I'm going to post an article um, a PDF, actually, and it talks about African Americans and a New Deal, a historic realignment in American politics. And, you know, it's nine pages, but it's actually a good read. And so I'll post that up a little bit later. But, you know, it's important that you guys know where this came from and, you know, the New Deal spending programs, how, you know, the money was pretty much kind of pushed away or hidden away or directed away from the poorest people, the people who needed it the most, you know, and that was, you know, millions of blacks and also poor whites. You know, there were quite a few poor whites that were, you know, um, denied access to these programs. But, you know, millions of blacks, you know, and especially some of the blacks that served in the military, when they came back, they were not able to participate in some of the programs like the um, VA loans and and um, the, the money for school and, you know, the different programs that the military had promised the soldiers and the opportunities, you know, promised to the military people that, Many of the blacks, when they came back, they were systematically denied access to these programs. And so, you know, go and look up WPA, Works Progress Administration. Look that up, you know, and and what was happening is they were putting together these programs 
And they knew that by giving the false promise of these programs, especially to, you know, um, people of color, that these particular people would vote for their political party, you know, because, you know, we're all looking to to have a better life in one regard or another. But, you know, these particular policies, I'm not sure if they were conceived, if you will, with racist intent, but they definitely had racist um, consequences. So, you know, you go back and you read this information. It's extremely important because, you know, a lot of people don't know about the history of these programs. But, you know, even, you know, with the Social Security, and we've talked about this, so I'm going to read this information. And I got this information right from the Social Security Administration website. And it says here, the Social Security Act was also racially coded, in part because of the power of Southern Democrats in the New Deal coalition. Southern politicians reported one architect of the new law were determined to block any entering wedge for federal interference with the handling of the Negro question. Southern employers worried that federal benefits would discourage black workers from taking low-paying jobs in their fields, factories, and kitchens. Thus, neither agricultural laborers nor domestic servants a pool of workers that included at least 60% of the nation's black population were covered by old age insurance. And so that came, you know, directly from the Social Security um, site, you know, and it was talking about how Social Security, you know, had a restrictive coverage policy. And, you know, just go back and and look this information up um, for a long time you know, farm workers or agrarians or agricultural workers and domestic workers, they weren't able to get, you know, Social Security. They weren't able to get unemployment. And, you know, a lot of that didn't change until the 60s. So look it up. This is, you know, extremely important for you all to understand, even with welfare in and of itself, that was created for white women and primarily for white women that were married to soldiers. So when the soldiers were sent to war, you know, this program was enacted to help cover the bills and and to make ends meet for the wives that were left at home with the children. And, you know, we talked about this before, but, you know, definitely go look that information up. You know, even now, a lot of the affirmative action programs out here benefits white women more than they do any person of color. And which is why, you know, I find it interesting when I see white women stating that they're against affirmative action, yet they benefit the most from it. But many of them do not, I I can't, you know, I just have to believe that they think they're benefiting from a different type of program, that they're not benefiting from, from welfare. I don't understand how they believe it's two different programs, but in their mind, they they believe that to be so. That would include LINK, which, you know, used to be called food stamps. And there are more white people in red states that benefit from these programs than there are, you know, black people. 
And so this is why it's important that, you know, we distribute this information and that we put this out here for people to go and, you know, look it up. You know, like the gentleman said, trust but verify. I say go for it. I tell you all all the time, go and research. Verify what I said. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to try to prove me wrong. Because while you're trying to prove me wrong and doing research, you're going to be learning along the way. And, you know, I have been corrected on a number of occasions. You know, I, I, you can go back and listen to some of the earlier shows. You know, some of my thoughts and perceptions and opinions have changed. And, you know, I've gone back and I've, you know, um, stated as such. So when I'm wrong on something, you know, believe it or not, I will, you know, concede and and state that. But go out, you know, it's important because it's a lot of things that happened during that era that people aren't aware of. Um, You know, go out and, you know, one of the biggest programs, you know, or the biggest acts that came from the New Deal was the National Industrial Recovery Act. And so with this particular act, it authorized the president to issue executive orders establishing some 700 industrial cartels. And with that, they were able to restrict output and enforce the wages and and prices above the market levels. So, you know, it's just interesting because it says here, the minimum wage regulations made it illegal for employers to hire people who weren't worth the minimum because they lacked skills. So as a result of that, a half million blacks in the South, or particularly in the South, were estimated to have lost their jobs. So look at this. Because of the way that this particular act was implemented, 500,000 black people lost their jobs, and most of them were living in the South under Jim Crow. So, again, you know, with what happened with the New Deal, it prolonged joblessness. It created, <laughs> it created you know, um, a society. It, it created a society of people who were basically unemployable due to no, no you know, fault of their own. So, and black people were hit the hardest. We were. So, you got to go back and understand and look at what's happening now. You know, I remember when President Obama was elected and, you know, the economy was shot. And so, they, they dubbed it the Great Recession. And, you know, that has turned around. But, again, you know, I've talked about how this economy is being floated by, you know, money that isn't there. They were pumping money into the economy, but they kept printing more and more money, which is why you saw the fluctuation of the value of a dollar. And even now, you know, looking at, you know, what's happening with this economy is still being floated. But what happened in 2000 and 2007 and 2008 was the market actually readjusted itself to where it should have been. Because if you go back to 2000 and 2001, when we had the tech bubble and that burst, or you know, um, a lot of things you know changed there. And you know, I always tell people with these tech, you know, with these technical or tech 
uh, technology companies, when they're put together, they are not formed to be in a the black. They're not necessarily formed to to have a profit. Many of them, you know, operate in the red the whole time that they're in existence. So it's, it's just interesting because for those of you that work in corporate America, I'm pretty sure many of you all are aware this is one of the reasons why you see them outsourcing the IT because the IT department is in the red. You know, that's one of the very few departments in many companies that do not generate a revenue. And so this is why you see some of the outsourcing of, you know, the IT staff and you have a skeletal crew at your company. This kind of explains some of it. But, again, you know, trying to take the information, you know, what happened then and kind of apply a lot of it now. And this is why you hear a lot of these people, particularly Republicans, talking about states' rights. Because when the money is pushed down to the states and the states are able to administer and implement these programs, you know, they're able to discriminate against, you know, people that they deem as unworthy, which primarily are people of color that they want to deny access to these particular programs. So, again, go back, read, you know, the information that are that is available out there because it's just you know going if you go back and you look with the new deal it was able to kind of bolster the the economy but particularly the southern economy but also keep the the racial hierarchy so while it put more money into their economies and, you know, provided more opportunities, particularly for white people, you know, some poor whites. You know, black people, you know, they were still being held down and held under. And that's not in all cases. There were many successful ones. You know, I don't need anyone emailing me saying, well, there were some blacks that prospered under, you know, Jim Crow and under the New Deal. Of course. You know, but, you know, those were exceptions. You know, and those one or two exceptions doesn't necessarily make it the rule, you know, because if the majority of the people are suffering, you know, how is that going to help them by looking at the one or two that are excelling? So, and then also, you know, I've talked about tokens and I've talked about, you know, (laughs) just how the system works. And again, just go back. And look up the history of reform and regulation under the New Deal and how um, it was used to advance certain groups while, you know, basically oppressing others. And so just, it's so much. It's so much, and they're not teaching these young people about any of this in school. And This is one of the reasons why you have a lot of these young people walking around and, you know, why you see a lot of anger, you know, not only with youth of color, but young whites as well. Because they're looking and they're not seeing the future for themselves. And, again, you know, it's just important to kind of tie it in for people to see. Because, I mean, even now, you know, the president has to come on television and reassure Americans that, you know, we're safe, 
and that the economy is being revived and opportunities, you know, are being created in our galore. And if you work hard and do as you're told and, you know, be a productive citizen, that, you know, you will prosper. And what's so interesting is, you know, they sell that American dream. But for many of us, this was an absolute nightmare because I know myself and some of my acquaintances, you know, we couldn't understand because, you know, we went by the rules. We did what we were told. You know, we went to school. We learned. We educated ourselves. We didn't have children that we couldn't afford, you know, as as they try to, you know, say there. And we went by the book. We followed the rules. And we were the first ones screwed. And there's a lot of anger, a lot of resentment. And, you know, this is why you saw Occupy Wall Street. This is why you're seeing, you know, more and more protests, you know, out here in the streets. And it's really just begun. And I've said this before. I said it, and I still mean it. We are sitting on a powder keg. I don't know what's going to happen that's going to, you know, jump off, but it's just a matter of time. And so and that's what makes this particular um, time period very scary for someone like me because, you know, we see what's happening with the political climate in this in, in this country, in America, and it was because of climates like this. This is how people like, you know, Hitler and Mussolini and others, this is how they came to power. And so this time period, I'm telling people to pay attention and listen. You know, not only know how to read between the lines, but learn how to listen for what is not being said. And so, um, yeah, keep your eyes open. It's a lot that's happening here. And you just have to pay attention. You have to pay attention because, you know, the minorities are, or the so-called minorities, um, are the ones that are going to be hurt the most. And there were some articles out there in which, you know, people were encouraging um, people of color to no longer call themselves minorities. So I'm going to try to strike that word from my vocabulary. However, I live in America, and this is what, you know, they call many people of color. They they like to categorize us as minorities. And what's interesting is they consider white women a minority as well. So anyway, going back to the New Deal, what was happening in, you know, between 1945 and 1955, they more than $150 billion to support, you know, um, retirement programs and and create opportunities for job skills, education, home ownership, and small business loans and and grants. And so basically, you know, what happened was, you know, this was able to kind of reshape our, you know, our, our social structure in this country. You know, that's what it was designed to do. You know, it created, again, we've talked about these, suburban white enclaves. So, you know, created the middle class. This is what created and solidified the white middle class in this country. And that was a lot of money. 
and that was the first time, you know, in, in, in the history of this country that so much money and so many resources had been, you know, um, um, pinpointed, you know, at that particular, you know, generation of Americans. And and definitely, you know, from the perspective of education, encouraging people to educate themselves, to go to college, to enter the workforce, and 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 you know, build families, create families. And, you know, that money in blacks, for the most part, most blacks were left out of all of this, which is why when you hear me, you know, because I did a show on, uh, let me see here, I'm trying to remember the name of the show. We've done so many as well, over 300 shows in the archives. But I know I did a show specifically talking about, FHA, Federal Housing Authority, and how they help to build, you know, these suburbs. And, you know, sometimes when you're riding along the highway and you'll see these walls and, you know, some people, you know, most people never pay attention. But the reason why those walls are there is to hide the poverty, to hide the poverty of the inner cities. You know, in Atlanta, they have a highway called the 285. Everything inside of the 285 is the city of Atlanta. That's Fulton County. Everything on the outside of 285, those are the suburbs. So, you know, Clayton County, Fulton County, you know, um, DeKalb, and a number of other places. And, I mean, the same thing here in Chicago, you know, and a number of other places. And the inner city is where they ushered most people of color and, you know, they made it very hard for people to move out of the inner city. And, and, and you know, even in Chicago, Chicago is called one of the most segregated cities in the country. And we have different little enclaves here. You know, we have the area where, you know, that's called Ukrainian Village. Uh, we have Chinatown. We have, you know, um, area where there are Polish people, Irish it's very segregated, you know, here in Chicago. And you have the Irish, you know, area like Bridgeport and Cicero. And, you know, some of that has been integrated by force. But, um, you know, this is how all of this happened, you know, and that's, that's still being implemented to this day. And what's interesting is in a lot of these inner cities, a lot of the landowners are wealthy white men and corporations, you know, and there are some blacks that own, you know, a lot of land, but in particular, if you go and you look at the portfolio of a lot of the churches, you know, that are in, you know, economically and educationally disadvantaged neighborhoods, they own a lot of property too, you know, and quite a few of them are slumlords, and what's interesting is in a lot of the property, they got for little to nothing, and then they pay no taxes on it. And then, you know, it, it's just it's amazing how all of this has been set up. So, you know, go back, take a listen, go, you know, the GI Bill, which was supposed to, you know, help, you know, the soldiers, you know, uh, to achieve higher education, a lot of blacks were left out of that, and it created job ceilings. You know how you hear when people say the glass ceiling? 
You know, that is a very real thing. And so that's why, you know, I like to talk about these things. And, and you know, there were, um, you know, discrimination against black surge soldiers when they returned. Um, you know, they couldn't get the loans, you know, that they needed to buy homes for their family or, uh, you know, and this is when the loans were covered or insured by the federal government. And that included loans to go to college. You know, so they were denied those opportunities. And, you know, it's interesting because during that time, they made 3,229 GI Bill guaranteed loans for homes, businesses, and farms. And that was in 1947 in Mississippi. And only two were offered to black veterans. Now, I'll read that again, 3,229 GI Bill guaranteed loans for homes, businesses, and farms were made in 1947 in Mississippi, and only two were offered to black veterans. How about that? You know, and so <laughs> go back, you know, and look up the New Deal, look up the Fair Deal, look up, you know, the New Freedom, look that all up, you know, and again, these programs have been used to create and protect white wealth. You know, we talk about wealth inequality often, and, you know, these are some of the examples that are out there as to how this came about and how it's still being implemented. I mean, you know, look up the Homesteading Act. Look up who benefits from that. This is where you get, you know, the Bundy Ranch and the Bundy Crew or the Bundy Bunch and them basically feeling as though it is their God-given manifest destiny to take this land and that the government owes it to them or that they can just do as they please and the government has no say-so. You know, a lot of this goes all the way back to homesteading and even before because they were giving out that property. As a matter of fact, in certain parts of the country, they're still giving away property. It's just that that information does not, you know, trickle down, if you will, to communities of color, you know, and poor white communities. And so, and even, you know, with some of the poor whites, you know, they've been able to go and, and benefit from some of the programs when they found out about it. But, um, you know, some people, some, some people of color were able to benefit from it, but very, very few. And so, you know, again, Pay attention to what's happening now. You know, I want you to go and look up the Jim Crow Congress. But when you read about that, I want you to think about what's happening in America now, especially with the Tea Party and the Libertarians. And I want you to contrast that and, you know, compare it. And so that you can see how, you know, some of the names have changed, but some of the games that they're playing, they're the same. It's just that, you know, the date the date has changed and the names have changed, but the games are still the same. And so when I have people calling in or we have the discussion and we talk about black empowerment, and I always state we have the knowledge and the know-how to create wealth. You know, the problem is how do we keep it? Because even in 2007 and 2008, when we had the mortgage crisis, 
a lot of my, well, not my, a lot of wealth was lost in communities of color because, you know, black people in particular, they love them some real estate. So they invested a lot of money in real estate. And what was happening was basically they were being um, given the opportunity to um, renegotiate their mortgages or if they had a home that was paid off, you know, some of them took a mortgage out for whatever reasons. And even now you have what's called a reverse mortgage, and that was happening then as well. And people were losing their homes left and right, you know, because they were they were not – I can't say they weren't being told, but it was not being explained thoroughly about, you know, some of the balloon payments, about the variable rates, and how in some cases they were not able to renegotiate their loan due to different clauses within their, you know, new mortgage loan. And so a lot of wealth was lost. And, you know, if you go and you look at the research, we are in worse shape now than, you know, than we were when, you know, during the 50s and the 60s and even really before. And so that is what's so extremely, you know, discouraging. But, yeah, go and take a look, you know, go look that information up, and you'll see, you know, how all of this came about. And, oh, yeah, last week when I was talking on a show, and I was talking about John Legend in the food trucks, and I mistakenly said Occupy Wall Street, what I meant was during the protest for Ferguson and, and, and you know, um, just the protests that were happening across this country, they sent the food trucks into New York City to feed the protesters. So it wasn't necessarily Occupy Wall Street. So I wanted to make sure that I corrected that because after I said it, I thought about it. I was like, oh, no, but there's so much information, you know, that I try to get out. So, you know, just bear with me. You know, I make mistakes too. And I'm just sitting here laughing because I haven't spoken in tongues yet today. So (laughs) forgive me, but, yeah, go back and, you know, look up these, you know, the policies that were implemented and, you know, what has gone through, you know, the different types of civil rights legislations and the affirmative action programs of the 60s and how it definitely gave whites, you know, a a leg up. You know, it, it gave them a boost into home ownerships. It created these suburbs. It gave them the opportunity to go and get their higher education. It gave them, you know, um, the opportunity to to seek better skills for employment, you know, on-the-job training, you know, which is kind of unheard of, you know, today, even though they still have it. It's just not available to everybody. But, you know, these same opportunities, you know, were denied to black citizens of this country. So it's important for you all to understand this so-called, you know, golden age in in America, you know, or capitalism's golden age. And so, you know, a lot of blacks were left behind, definitely left behind. And this is how the wealth inequality gap was formed, you know, um, You know, it was already there, but the gap just increased, you know, exponentially. So you got to go back 
and you need to read. And I'm pretty sure you've seen the studies out that shows the net worth for blacks. You know, the net worth for black women is $1. And then many of you wonder why we fight for women in general, but particularly, you know, women of color. You know, we've been, you know, disenfranchised on a number of levels by a number of different people. You know, go back and do some research on, you know, black children in our cities and how they are disadvantaged. And, you know, with the lead poisoning, the lack of opportunities, I want you all to definitely go out and do some research about charter schools. You know, anyone who listens to this show knows that I am anti-charter schools and pro-public schools. And there is money to be made behind the charter schools. You know, um, if you do some research, you'll see that a lot of hedge funds own these charter schools. You see a lot of, you know, foreign nationals or, or, or foreigners coming into America purchasing charter schools. And this helps to usher them to the front of the INS line so that they can bring their families to America. And one of the main requirements is that they have to employ at least 10 Americans in order for them to be able to implement a lot of those incentives. So go back. It's about money. And they're trying to privatize the educational system. And there have been many examples in history in which they have shut down the school systems. And then they would put together these private schools. And white kids go to the private schools that were receiving federal monies, but children of color, particularly black children, were just ass out. No education, no school for them. And that is what they're setting it up for now. And just go, take a look at the number of children that's living below the federal poverty line. It's sickening. It's absolutely sickening. And what's interesting is, you know, Lyndon Johnson, President Lyndon Johnson, if you go and you look up to fulfill these rights, you know, that was when he finally, you know, faced up to the racial inequality in this country. But go and look up that speech that he made to fulfill these rights. You know, and he delivered it ironically to Howard University and this took place in June nineteen sixty five. You know, and he stated freedom is not enough. You do not take a person who for years has been hobbled by chains and liberate him, bring him up to the starting line of a race, and they say you are free to compete with all the others and still justly believe you have been completely fair. You know, and that's true. And he said, you know, what is needed um, is a new set of policies or a set of new policies, a dramatic new type of affirmative action for the poor, the unemployed, the uprooted, and the dispossessed. And, you know, he was thinking about another comprehensive um, effort like the GI Bill, you know, so, um, but this time it wouldn't have any exclusionary policies or, you know, patterns of implementation. So, again, you know, we were hurt in a lot of ways, you know, by this. You know, they lowered the pay scales for black people. Um, And, again, you know, we talked about NRA, National Recovery Administration. So, you know, they called it destructive competition. Look that up. 
you know, and because they were able to offer white people, you know, the first crack at jobs, you know, giving them the first opportunity for these jobs. And then were, you know, able to lower the pay scale for, for black people. You know, with also with the Federal Housing Administration, they were able to keep black people out of white neighborhoods. That's still being done to this day. So <laughs> go and look. Look it up. You know, um, I remember someone, I was trying to remember who wrote this, but they were talking about how their father, when he came back from the war, how, you know, they were looking for homes, and the realtors kept trying to show him homes in specific areas, and their father wouldn't accept it and made them show homes in the suburbs because he was threatening to sue them. And so, you know, again, go back and look at it because, you know, you know, a lot of white families were able to buy homes, have them, you know, constructed, you know, what have you, with little to no money down, you know, and given a 30-year mortgage, you know, and just look. Go and find out. Um, absolutely, you know, amazing. You know, there were specific policies in FHA for not insuring suburban mortgage for African-Americans or black people. This is why you see, you know, different banking systems even still being sued now for what happened, you know, back in the early 2000s when you had people of color taking out these loans, you know, these mortgage loans and being charged higher interest rates. And, you know, there was a lot of skullduggery happening at that time. But go, look it up. It's important that you guys, you know, know what was happening here. Um, You know, over in um, Queens, over in Levittown, in 1947, you know, they built basically 17,500 mass-produced two-bedroom homes. They didn't require any money down, and the monthly payments were about $60. Guess how many blacks <laughs> were able to get one of those properties? Not one, because they refused to sell blacks, to, I mean, refused to sell homes to blacks. You know, and so, and then what was interesting is they had prohibitive clauses to ensure that when they resold these homes, that it would not be sold to blacks in the future. Look it up. Look it up. You know, trust but verify. Look it up. So, you know, it was a number of things. And then, you know, what's interesting is, you know, you have white people pointing at people of color and asking, why are you so on edge? Why are you so angry? Blah, 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 blah. This is why. This is why. And what's interesting is, you know, you'll have a number of them say, well, you know, that was then and this is now. It was. It's not like that now. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. And, you know, you'll have some whites, you know, again, say, well, I've never seen that. You've never had to think about it. They'll even say they've never had to think about it. So, you know, it's it's just, it's amazing. (laughs) It's just, it's absolutely amazing what has been allowed to take place in this country and what is still being allowed to take place. 
But, you know, a lot of this has to do with, you know, fear in this country. You know, it's a lot of fear then and now. And, you know, like I said, fear is an industry, you know, and it's sold. You know, this fear is being sold. So anyway, uh, next week we'll be talking about part three of the New Deal and, you know, the Raw Deal. And, you know, again, I encourage you guys to go and do some research. And there are many, many more examples that I can give you. But, you know, again, go out and look. And next week I'm specifically going to talk about how communities of color are deeply impacted now due to this and give some examples and give a little bit of the history of it. But, yeah, you know, it's a lot of fear, a lot of fear. And you see it now. I mean, you know, go and look up killing the crops. You know, that happened then. You know, because a lot of people don't realize is that with some of these farmers, they're paid to not grow as many crops as they could grow. They're being paid to do that. And then when there is an overstock, a lot of that overstock is, you know, left to rot. There's enough overstock available to, you know, feed a lot of the hungry people, all the hungry people in this country. There shouldn't be any hungry or homeless people in this country. There, We do have surpluses. So, you know, go back and read about how the Agricultural Adjustment Administration reduced production and how they were killing the crops and letting it rot, all of that, you know, and go back and read how, you know, President Roosevelt refused to support the anti-lynching bill, all of this, all of this, you know, played a part. You know, go look up anti-black terrorism. You know, and that's why I call, you know, what happened down there in Charleston, South Carolina, the guy that, you know, that that killed all those people, he's a domestic terrorist. That's exactly what he was. So go back, you know, anti-blackness is an industry, definitely is an industry, and is definitely tied to capitalism. You know, when the gentleman called earlier when he was talking about um slavery, you know, go back, you know, that's how capitalism came to be. That's how it was formed. That is what it was built on then, and it's still, you know, built on that. It rests its laurels on that. So, again, guys, a lot of information, you know, it's a lot of information to digest. And, again, we're only, you know, kind of dancing around the edges here. I would say, you know, take some time out. A lot of research goes into this. And, again, this is the information age. So, you know, all this information is available. Just take time time out. You know, um, one of the things from that happened back then, and I know this is one of the reasons why you saw a lot of blacks leaving the south and moving north, 
it was because in the South, blacks were, you know, let's say a black person was walking down the street. White people could just literally walk up to black people and start beating them or kill them and shoot them just because. And that was allowed then. And, I mean, think about, you know, what has been happening across this country with that case in Florida. And I forgot the young Jordan, that young man, and the white guy demanded that they turn the music down. And he, you know, shot into the car. You know, I guess he felt disrespected as a white man because he gave us an order and we didn't comply. You know, and it's just, it's amazing. You know, and I consider this situation with them refusing to, you know, protect Beyonce because of her performance. Same thing, spurning blacks, controlling blacks. You know, put those people in their place. You know, so (laughs) it's interesting. Um, You know, one of the quotes from back then, any nigger who gets over $8 a week is a spoiled nigger. That's all. The Negroes, (laughs) it's just, you know, the Negroes regard the president as the Messiah, and they think that they'll all be getting $12 a week for the rest of their lives. That was the rhetoric then. That's the rhetoric you have now. Who said that? Lorena Hickok. You know, H-I-C-K-O-K. You know, and, you know, this is just interesting. So, yeah, they didn't want to give money to blacks, you know, regarding, you know, the distribution of relief. And just look it up. You know, these programs definitely widen the, you know, wealth inequality gap. And they don't want a lot of this information out there. You know, I've had white people say, well, we didn't know that happened. We didn't know anything about this. Yeah. You didn't know. A lot of blacks didn't know. A lot of people still don't know. You know, and it's not just black people, you know, Latino people. You know, they're getting it as well. And this is nothing new. If you go all the way back to Cesar Chavez and, you know, even before then, how, you know, they were being treated and how there was, you know, just genocidal programs in place, particularly in California. Just go look it up. And even with the Native Americans, you know, they're being killed out in the street, you know, at a higher rate than black people and Latino people. Just go back. Look it up. You know, if you go back to World War II with the internment camp, Asian Americans were, you know, interned. It's just the history of this country. And... It's it's amazing. So that's why, you know, tell people to go look it up. There are other racial groups that were being lynched, not just black people, but Filipinos, Italians, you know, Latinos. Go back. Look it up. You know, not not every program is a good program. So go and look it up. Um. Yeah, you know, what was happening with a lot of the New Deal programs, you know, it was supposed to break down the walls of discrimination and segregation. And what it did was build higher walls and reinforce the walls that were already there. So, again, 
you know, at that time, African black people, we thought we thought that we would be given a fair deal, a fair shake, and that we would be able to give our grievances and receive some type of empathy or understanding or interpretation or help. And that never came. It never happened. So again, Black America, New Deal, Raw Deal. Today was part two. Next week, part three. And then trying to figure out what I'm going to talk about. I know I want to do a three or four part series on capitalism. Maybe we'll just segue directly into that. I don't know. I'm pretty sure it's going to be something ignorant happening between now and then that I just absolutely have to talk about. So anyway, this is Kim with Black Free Thinkers, and we are here to challenge you to think and live for yourself, not convert you. Hey, guys, love you much. Thank you for checking up on the archives. Goodbye. Have a good Sunday.